Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, you can check out the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, uh, basically any podcasting platform you want to go to, click subscribe, rate and review. That always is a big benefit, especially... Uh, as there are a lot of really great movie podcasts out there, and uh, there are a lot, and you're going to get to hear some of those podcasters uh, this summer. It's going to be a uh, really fun uh, run of uh, episodes starting with today, and I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, make sure to click subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. There you will get exclusive series like Leaving the Collection and Life Soundtrack as well as early access reviews, uh, some reviews that are basically exclusively for Patreon subscribers, as well as other content from film festivals, Dragon Con, as well as my uh, annual Oscar uh, nominations discussions. And that is at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Uh, today's guest, it's been a while since he's been on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to having him back. Uh, We've talked about Martin Scorsese. We've talked about Andre Tarkovsky. We've turned talked about Francois Truffaut, as well as a bunch of other films. We are going to be talking about another filmmaker with a pretty significant footprint on film history, and that is the independent maverick John Cassavetes. And join me is a filmmaker and now film critic. Chris Esper. Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. As always, it, like you said, it's been ages. Um, interesting that we're even talking about Cassavetes because in watching his films, and, you know, of course, we'll get into the discussion deeper, but in watching his films, I couldn't help but think of, of course, Scorsese because he was, Cassavetes was a huge influence on him, but also Truffaut. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because Truffaut and Cassavetes were sort of coming up at the same time, making films around the same period. So it's kind of interesting to see sort of the Americanized, if you will, sort of cinema verite style that the Fresh New Wave sort of adopted uh, before that whole, I guess, free-flowing style came to America. So it's nice to see the other side of that around the same period and how that eventually changed the course of filmmaking for other independent filmmakers like Scorsese's or Woody Allen or... uh, Robert Altman even has said to be very influenced mm. by Kesavet, but I'm getting ahead. We're getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> oh yeah, but I mean, honestly, I mean, there's there's so many. Uh, you know, I mean, you 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 mentioning Truffaut and uh, Scorsese. I mean, you you can't really have a discussion without about Cassavetes without discussing those two. I don't think, sure. especially if you're yeah. well versed in their histories and. Then, if you're starting to get sense of uh, Cassavetes as well, um, before sure. we do get into that deeper discussion, though, it has been a while since we've talked. Uh, so, what have you been up to in the past uh, few years? Uh, so, in the past few years, it's been um, a, been, been a lot of interesting developments. So, so, for one, I'm still making a lot of short films, uh, but uh, the the latest one that you saw that now in festivals it's sort of ending its run it's not quite there yet but it's still a few more to go uh, Undertaker uh, that one and again with that one I was very much influenced by French New Wave cinema in making that picture uh, so kind of kind of nice that we're going back to this 
similar sort of discussion. Um, but yeah, so that one's making its rounds uh, with the festival circuit. Uh, done fairly well, I would say. I mean, very, very different film from most of the ones I've made, uh, but I'm, you know, very, very pleased with it. Um, otherwise, I've been uh, also working as a director of photography and editor on local productions here in New England, where I'm based. Uh, sometimes travel to New York or wherever, it depends on the project. Um, but uh, uh, so I've been working doing a lot of that. And as well, um, my day job is working as an assistant editor in reality television, primarily for A&E networks, but I've also done work for uh, Irwin Entertainment on a few comedy specials that they've done for Netflix and for um, uh, uh, HBO Max, well, excuse me, Max, as it's called now. (laughs) But... It will but, always be HBO Max to me. I'm sorry. Yeah, same. I'm sorry. It will always be HBO Max to me. But, but yes, yeah, so I've done, done a few specials for them working as a assistant editor. So that's sort of been my bread and butter uh, that pays my bills. But it's also my field, which really helps to have a job in the field while also sort of working at your craft, if you will. Uh, so it's taught me a lot. It's helped me grow as a, I guess, creator, filmmaker. Um, and now I've just been writing a lot, you know, whether that's... Uh, uh, you mentioned being a film critic. I've been doing some reviews for Film Threat. It's been a while, but I need to sort of get back on that. But I started writing for them uh, as well as working on my own personal screenplays or other short form books. You know, I just I just love to create. You know, that's that's my I just love to create as much as I can, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that I've always uh, appreciated about you is the fact that you are you are willing to take up different challenges and different ways in order to hone your craft. I mean, I do think to a certain extent, film criticism is just as, you know, interesting a way of doing that as anything, especially for somebody who is a uh, filmmaker and is interesting. And I mean, you know, we, we talked about Truffaut earlier. I mean, he started off as a film critic before he became a filmmaker. All of the French new wave did. it's funny you say that it's it's funny you say that because that was actually my influence for wanting to do it in the first place was i i I don't know i was on kind of a it's so weird this is like back in january i got on kind of a i rewatched life itself uh for like the up team times i love that documentary it's fantastic about the great roger Ebert, of course Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course that sent me down a rabbit hole of watching siskel and ebo all over again and uh marathoning all their shows and i mean they were just so intelligent and they were so smart and they were just so passionate mm-hmm. about about talking films and writing about films and you know rereading their essays and things like that that it sort of influenced me to try that path a little bit and be like okay well what you know because it's funny i i try to keep up with film criticism i don't really as much as i used to but um but it's fascinating how much has changed over the course of time with the advent of social media and Ron tomatoes and that sort of thing where um, and there's very few good writers out there uh, that really know how to write about film and do it in a personal way, the same way Roger Ebert did. Uh, I always felt like that was sort of missing uh, mm-hmm. with some of the reviews I would read. Um, so I kind of want to take a stab at it, too. Uh, and it's been I mean, I've been mostly reviewing independent films, uh, much like you do, um, like whatever submissions come in through their website. But it's been fun because you discover these new people that you never heard of before you discover very fascinating films and sometimes the films you don't love so much but you still appreciate what they did especially newer filmmakers i, I reviewed a few films from uh 
some newer filmmakers and I couldn't really fault them if there was like something wrong technically with audio or with lighting or what have you, because I was there too. <laughs> and, you know, it, and you know, you're sort of learning and I almost appreciated them that I could hardly really even give them bad reviews, but just, you know, sort of say some of the extent of, you know, there's a learning curve here. Uh, I didn't quite love the film, but I could appreciate what was going mm-hmm. on here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of fun to discover new voices and what they have to say, what they have to offer. Well, welcome, welcome to that, uh, that, <laughs> that life of being a film critic. I, I mean, that's oh. honestly, in all honesty, I mean, one of my, one of the best things that ever happened to me as a film critic was not only getting to be familiar with your work, but other people that sure. we know, other filmmakers that you and I are both, uh, associated mm-hmm. with. And yep. to really, and I mean, you know, I, I certainly understand what you mean as far as, uh, you know, trying not to fault people, especially with technical and imperfections, especially if you're working on that uh, lower scale of independent cinema, where it's like mm-hmm. you're you're limited by the means that you have. And exactly. so, I mean, so long, as, and for me, so much of it is so long as the story you're telling is sound and I get engaged by it. I can look over those and I can look past those imperfections because of the fact that it's like you can tell that the filmmaker's learning, but you can also tell that they're they're good at telling a story. Exactly. Exactly. And that's sort of that was sort of the basis of my thoughts with um again, not to jump ahead, but like in watching Shadows, for example, um, this was my first time seeing it, by the way. I had not seen Shadows prior mm-hmm. to this uh, prior to this podcast. And in watching it, I knew it was Cassavetti's first film, and I knew it was held in such high regard, and it's often held on a very high pedestal. And I could, I could see exactly why it's a terrific film. But all the same, I did see the technical stuff as well that were exactly what we're talking about. And it was made with very little money, shot on sixty millimeter film with like a borrowed camera, uh, hardly ever using a boom pole. They used body mics for most of it, and yeah. probably had to dump. They had to dub 90% of the sound. Oh, I shouldn't say 90%. They had to dub a lot of the sound, I should say, uh, due to the fact that um, th- there was no way of syncing the 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 picture with the sound because there, there was no one keeping track of takes. I, I did all this research online. I, I was like, wow, it, it's like flashback <laughs> for 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 myself who was who was starting out like you know 10, 13 years ago or so. Uh and so in a way, I couldn't even like really criticize it because it uh it was actually charming to see this sort of like DIY approach to filmmaking that he was taking with this first film. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things that really it it's, it's kind of important to realize that even, even somebody like Cassavetes who is considered a, who who is considered one of the godfathers of modern uh, independent cinema, you right. know, he, he, he's not working with, Hollywood on these films. He's doing his oh. own. I mean, even on the third film that we're talking about, Woman Under the Influence, he had to mortgage his right. house in order oh, to get yeah. some of the budget. So, yep. I mean, yep. he he's working, and I think a big part of that is the way he's working and the types of stories he's telling. And we can actually go ahead and jump into uh, Cassavetes, and let's start sure. with... Um, what was it? Cause you were, cause I asked you if there was a particular subject that you wanted to uh, cover right. on your return to Sonic Cinema podcast. 
what was it mm-hmm. about Cassavetes that uh, made you want to uh, pick him? Well, in all honesty, again, it was an excuse to actually go and actually see his films because I've read about him. Uh, I've heard other filmmakers talk about him. I've seen bits and pieces of his films, uh, but never actually seen them all in full. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I watched documentaries about him and I just thought, wow, what a fascinating figure. I got to know more. Uh, so when you reach out to me, I figured, oh, this is the perfect time. I, you know, I, I figured you'd be on board too, given your love of independent cinema as well. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, this will be a nice sort of bridge. Cause again, we covered Scorsese with his sort of biblical trilogy. Uh, we've covered Truffaut with his most, I guess, influential works, um, again, Tarzovsky. And so it just seemed appropriate to go on the other side of the spectrum and try Cassavetes, um, and again, I just really wanted to see what, uh, I don't want to say what the fuss was about, because that's not the right term, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I wanted to see what the praise uh, was coming from. And I really just wanted to put the two together. Uh, and I was influenced by him in, sort of in a in a distance. And I wanted to see, you know, full front, uh, like, you know, fully, like what, what his films were like from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I I was not disappointed at all. <laughs> oh no, neither was I. I mean, even uh, even Shadows, which was the uh, earliest film of his, which was mm-hmm. a his first film, but also sure. was the earliest film of his that we uh, we decided we were going to uh, look mm-hmm. at. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even I don't know that I love it as much as you do. I do think it, it kind of meanders as much a, a bit, and I think yeah. a big part of that is the improvising yeah. that takes place and terms of mm-hmm. building the scenes but yeah. even even in that movie you can tell by the way he uses the music and the camera it's a very distinctive look and yeah. i mean it's not necessarily distinctive to us in 2023 but no. you can tell that it was as revolutionary as what Godard and right. Tifo were doing over in france oh exactly i mean uh and and I I don't think this is I don't think Shadows is by far I mean he considers it his best film Cassavetes. Uh, I actually thought one of the three that we viewed I thought Woman Under the Influence was the best one which we'll get yeah. to a, we'll get a to that yeah yeah but Sh- Shadows I appreciated it but I I agree with you to some extent that it didn't meander quite a bit and some of the acting was not always there uh, a lot of the time and you could tell that they were volunteers they were amateur actors and you know that was Cassavetes' full intent was to do real people, you know, with the hardly even a written script, just simply uh, a very detailed outline. And then the actors would just improvise it. And a lot of times that worked. Other times, I don't think it worked really that well. And, you know, there were problems with like camera focus or with sound. Uh, but, and again, I couldn't, I couldn't fault that. I actually appreciated yeah. that it had those because um, it did have a very sort of cinema verite documentary style. Um and I watched it with uh, my girlfriend, who used to be an editor, um, and she also loves um, old cinema, too. So we watched it together, and she felt the same that that you did, too, that it kind of meandered a bit, but she appreciated what it was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very episodic. I mean, it's basically, it, it feels like it's basically more trying to capture moments than to tell a story. I mean, there yeah. is a story that comes in when it comes to... Yeah, Layla yeah. and Tony, who's basically sure. who's a mixed race couple, but he doesn't realize yeah. that she's black. Right. I mean, she's passing, but um, 
you know, and then the real when that realization comes up, I think the tension there's very palpable when you can feel that. But at the same time, it's just yeah, there's so many things about you know, and for the most part, episodic is not necessarily a bad thing. Like episodic, mm. you can create stories and themes and ideas in that, but it's really especially and i think part of it is because of the fact that we're so conditioned to expect a narrative like we're supposed to like the characters we meet in the beginning of the film are the characters we're going to be following throughout that entire film right Mm -hmm. and i mean you know it's like you can kind of see this is sort of you know you can you can kind of see the way that link later is a great example of somebody who was probably very inspired by shadow oh yeah for sure i mean funny you should bring him up because as soon as you said that i thought of uh well boyhood is sort of an example of that you could sort of see that sort of um i guess not not necessarily improv but the idea of like episodic yeah you know because you know his boyhood is very episodic in in the way it's told um going from age to age i sort of see that here too and uh, like you said there is sort of a plot but it comes much later mm-hmm. into the uh uh, into the story but in between there are some beautiful scenes um in particular i like the scene where tony and layla are laying in bed after they had just uh made love and they have that beautiful beautiful dialogue scene i have to wonder if that was at all written or if that was all improvised because there were moments where i could tell it was improvisation then there were others where i was like hmm was that written was that improv yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean you de- definitely do get that thing but i the thing I like about Shadows is that you can tell that it's it's Cassavetes really like figuring out what the film is, what what right. the medium of film can al- can afford him, what type of right. things that he can he can do in film and as mm-hmm. a filmmaker. And I like I said, some of the uses of music, which you know, it's it's from the 1950s and it's jazz, yeah. it's blues, it's a lot of that stuff it's it very much is of its time and place but i think it's very yep. effective in the way it uses music in that movie but also the camera i mean it, it's funny because yes. of the fact that even though i i think the camera work is fantastic in all three of these films that mm-hmm. one feels the most adventurous in the way that yes. the camera is moving yes yeah, I mean, a lot of it is just like, again, handheld camera work, um, very little camera support by way of tripod or no crane shots. There's no, uh, like all the tools we know of today, they're just thrown out the window. Even mm-hmm. the tool, well, well, the tool, I mean, and that's not to say that there weren't tools that there certainly were of the, of the time, but this was like, you know, this was like uh, not even a tripod from what I could tell. It was mostly just handheld that gave it a very intimate feel, I I thought, um, and uh, and that's sort of been the theme the theme of Cassavetes' films is that intimacy. Um, but it's interesting as we get to Woman Under an Influence. I noticed that the camera work was more locked down; it was more voyeuristic than intimate, um, and I think there's a reason for that, yeah. um, which yeah. which we'll get to. But no, here here, I mean, he's with the actors; he's following them from room to room. Um, from what I understand, the way Cassavetes would light a scene or would would instruct his cinematographer to light their light the scenes is by just having a single light, just to light the whole room, not going for effect, not going for anything spectacular, just just giving a basis for 
the camera to be able to capture the images. And I think that's that's great because then that led that left room for the actors to move around. Same with the sound. Again, they would just use body mics and that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, it's like you 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 said that you uh broadcast Vettis because of the fact that it was finally, you know, it was an opportunity for you to start digging into his work. I mean, this is honestly yeah. the first time I've watched any of these films too. I thought I had seen Faces the second film in our uh, little trio here um yeah. before but i i could just be projecting the fact that i've seen the clips that are in uh scorsese's documentary about american right. films so much right. that yeah. uh that's that's kind of what i'm thinking about when uh that yeah. when i watch that but yeah. um yeah so i mean this was this was all completely new to me but like you said i mean it's a he he's a filmmaker who's so important in the history of American cinema and because of the fact that you and I came, you know, you and I started talking because I started watching your work, which right. you know is, you know, and, and very much uh the way I started to really appreciate independent film, you know, not beyond beyond the studio independent film and basically film yeah. festivals and as I've covered, started to cover film festivals and stuff like that, right. I'm more and more familiar with uh, filmmakers working on limited means and basically trying to take what they can get as far as uh, making their art. And yeah, I, exactly. I think that, and that's one of the things that is so extraordinary about Cassavetes. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's also kind of an indictment of the system too. The fact that even, even though he had this tremendous debut in, shadows and then later he would have faces which is another huge success relatively speaking he was mm-hmm. still having to do stuff like mortgages house to get a woman under the influence yeah. made which is absolutely wild it's wild yeah and then as we get as we get to that film too i mean he was also in a position where he didn't have a distributor really he would just like bring cans of film to from theater to theater to yeah um, to, to be able to exhibit it and a lot of theaters well distributors either didn't want his films they didn't understand his films he was also the kind of filmmaker that he would show a film he would show a cut of a film realize something didn't work go back re-edit it and re-release i think he did that with shadows i'm pretty sure i know he did it with faces but i believe yeah. he also did that. yeah 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 i mean i i i read up on uh both of them and yeah i mean both of them were cases where there were this much longer there were longer mm-hmm. cuts of them. I mean, Faces oh, wow. is already over two hours. So, I mean, it's hard to right. imagine that being any, you know, that working any longer. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, you're you're just basically watching him figure out the craft of film in shadows. I mean, yeah. for the most part, I think he succeeds very well. And like I said, I, I think it's sure. a very good film overall. I think it's an interesting yeah film overall just it it just didn't quite have the impact to me that uh faces and woman under the influence did but i would agree with that but yeah Yeah. you can you can still see the craft is there you can still see the beginnings of what was to come with those later films yeah i think i think of anything shadows is probably so revered not necessarily because of the story or not necessarily because of anything specific within the film but more so of what happened behind the camera and getting it made and also the intent behind it. And again, like you said, the evolution of a craftsman, uh, of a filmmaker, um, uh, developing his voice, I guess, if you will, 
I, I think that's why it's probably more influential and not so much because of the film itself. But again, that doesn't mean it's a bad film. Far from it. Yeah. Uh, I just wouldn't say, like you said, I just <clears> wouldn't <throat> say that like quite on the same level as Faces or Woman Under the Influence. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we we can already go to we can go ahead and go to faces. And the thing that mm-hmm. even right away when I was watching this film, you could tell that everything about the filmmaking was just so much more pronounced and so yes. much just so much stronger than it was in Shadows. And I mean, I he made a couple of features in in the interim, but he also did a lot of television. I wonder. What as as an editor and as a uh, cinematographer as well as a filmmaker yourself, mm-hmm. what is yeah. the uh, you know you you've talked about you're working on uh, television a lot. What mm-hmm. is uh, what is the what is the fundamental difference in working on television working on television shows versus mm-hmm. film? That's a great question. Um... So I so primarily I've been working in reality TV, which is uh, a whole other beast than episodic television. And as we and as we know right now with the uh, uh, with the writer strike, there's really not much happening with uh, episodic TV at, at this time. But nonetheless, uh, TV, whether it is reality television or whether it is um, uh, episodic or or I should say fictional television television is very fast and furious you know you have to get it done everyone wants it yesterday <laughs> the, yeah. uh, um, uh, every cut that goes out to a network or what have you uh so it's much quicker it's much faster and i did one of my one of my many projects i've been working on the past couple of years is compiling a list of interviews with different directors for this follow-up book i'm writing for filmmaker's journey which i wrote in 2016 and I had spoken to a few television directors, uh, one of whom was John Badham, who, of course, mm-hmm. he's, he's more known for his feature work, of course. Um, you know, Saturday Night Fever, Blue Thunder, War Games. But um, he, he also directs a lot of television and has before he became a feature director and still doing television today. And one of the things that he said that remains true is that television is shot in seven to eight days uh, for the most part. Um, you know, and of course, on a feature film, you could sometimes have of course, depending on the circumstances, you have more time and more money to work with versus in television. Although it's interesting though, with the advent of Netflix and the advent of uh, Hulu and all, all this original streaming content, television is looking a lot more like movies yeah. today. Or I should say they are looking like movies, really. I mean, we've already made it to where television is just as cinematic as film is or should be. Uh, so... I, but I, the turnaround time, I think, is still the same, where you have to get a show done really quickly. The only difference is now there's more money in television because back then, in Cassavetti's time, even going up to the early 2000s, I would say, television was looked down upon as like sort of like the redheaded stepchild oh, yeah. of, of the medium. Uh, you know, because like, you know, because like only hack writers, uh, hack writers, I should say in quotes, wrote for TV you know, hack directors only worked in TV or, you know, if you were starting out, you weren't a real director, you know, all that. Um, so it was sort of like bomb of the barrel, but now that's, that's changed. But the, but the difference uh, I'd say is just really time. I mean, you have, you have about a week to shoot a show in the case of reality television, it's sort of continuous, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, and we, and we actually do have scenes that we call verite scenes where it's just a camera 
fly on the wall following the action. Uh, and a lot of that's adopted from people like Cassavetes, sort of the cinema verite filmmakers of that period, like Maisel's. Um, uh, I forget who, I, I don't remember who did uh, the Rolling Stones documentary, Give Me Shelter. Um, that was, I, was that not was the Maisel's? Oh yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, that is the Maisel's. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like Pennebaker, like those guys um, who sort of, created the sort of freeform filmmaking that uh, has become pretty popular today. Um, you know, a lot of that came from, came from that. And now we adopted to reality television. Uh, so, so really film kind of influenced TV, I would say, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, that's kind of where we are now. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you brought up, you know, you brought up really uh, TV really starting to kind of change in the two thousands. I do think that change did kind of start in the nineties because you know, yeah. you, you are right about the reputation of TV because even in the night, even in the eighties, it was still predominantly uh, episodic in the sense that it was it was very familiar yes. uh, tropes and storytelling. Whether it's sitcoms, whether it's uh, whether it's more dramatic shows, they basically all worked within very established formulas from right. the fifties onward. And then in right. the 90s, you get people like, you get Twin Peaks, you get The X-Files, sure. and you get yeah. s- series like that that really do kind of start to push things forward stylistically. Right. And then by the time Sopranos comes out at the end of the decade, it's exactly. just off to the races. And once HBO starts taking over, I mean, it basically, you can't do the same thing on network TV anymore. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's that's a very good point. And you also think about too the way television was shot. Yeah. Um from like I I guess sort of I guess I guess by the nineties that did stop as well. You know, nowadays we have television that's in widescreen, uh in 4K even. Mm-hmm. Um but uh way but but before all that, you know, television was shot four by three, uh, and really framing of shots, you had the characters in the middle of the frame, whereas in widescreen, you have more space to work with where, you know, it's a much more interesting shot to have lead room for your actor to be sort of either left or right of frame. They have some lead room in front of them where they can look off to whatever they're looking at in the distance and you cut to, and, you know, of course you have the widescreen format and letterbox and all, all of that, all the benefits that TV did not have until, uh, like you said, 90s, 2000s, when it started to be taken a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's 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 funny because of the fact that like the whole reason widescreen exists at all for films is because of the fact that the studios were trying to figure out a way to compete with TV and make sure that people were still coming to the theater. Right. Yeah. And so now <laughs> that TV basically adopted widescreen in its own and TVs started to adapt and get bigger and get more yeah. elaborate, you know, especially with amorphic widescreen 16 by 9 4 4k now you know basically trying to out trying to get people there's this tension of like what's how does film how how do cinemas keep up with tv and it's really we're we're in that struggle right now because of the fact that i mean you know even the it you know it's it's not that the it's not that the pandemic necessarily crippled I mean, obviously, it did cripple movie theaters for a long, for a huge degree. I mean, I'm I'm very aware of that personally, yeah. but at the same time, it basically accelerated TV kind of taking over. 
for movies yeah. and especially as the streamers started to put out their own original films it's like oh well we'll just wait until it's streaming and then as yes. and that's that's a huge crux of what's going on with the current writer strike Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, pandemic aside, this would have happened no matter what. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Pandemic, because I mean, we were, we were already sort of getting there. The pandemic just elevated it because couldn't leave our house for, you know, a year or so or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's a shame because I love going to the cinema, you know, and, and to be able to see movies like Cassavetti's, uh films, let's say, or, you know, or, um, Scorsese, as we know, he's a big proponent of cinema viewing versus versus streaming. Uh, and I, I can appreciate uh, that his his latest film, Killers of the Moonflower, is going to be in theaters in addition to Apple TV. Uh, and I'm glad that streamers yeah. are giving opportunities like that for specific films or filmmakers, you know, and hopefully hopefully that trend can still continue because there is something special about seeing in a theater and watching on a big screen, you know, and uh it's interesting too that you mentioned, oh yeah, you know, we can wait till it streams. That is sort of the equivalent of back when I was a kid, it was, oh, well, you know, we can wait till it comes out on video. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the, the, you know, and the thing that, you know, as, as you and I were growing up, you know, no, one of the things that made that a dicier prospect of just waiting for video is, it wasn't necessarily on a time. It wasn't on a specific time frame of That's right. when yep. movies would come out in video. Because I mean, right. yep. you know, as VHS was coming into its own, it's like uh -huh. some big movies were not coming on video. And and I mean, sure. I think it took Spielberg six years to finally put ET on VHS. That's right. That's but, right. Yeah. Um, you know, even even stuff like Jurassic Park though wouldn't even come out for a year. Mm -hmm. And so, but oh, when yeah when the studios really figured out that VHS was a big business and then they create DVD, Blu-ray, all of that stuff. Once they realized the home market was something they could take, take advantage of financially, then they're like, Oh, okay. So we, we need to start getting on a regular time frame for when some of yeah. these movies come out. That's right. And That's right. now it's like, you know, some movies like Fast Nine, I think, is coming out in VOD this week, and it just came out mid-May. Right. And it's like, well, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of how it is, but it's really it's really crazy. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can see a movie like yeah, a movie comes out to the theater three or four weeks later, it's already on demand. It's like wow. I mm -hmm. mean, I when Fablements came out, I I had full intention to see it in theaters, and then. Like three or four weeks went by, it was gone from theaters, then it went straight to uh, Voodoo, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to see it on Voodoo. <laughs> That's how I saw it. That's how I saw it, unfortunately. But, uh, but you know, nonetheless, but uh, it's sad because, like, that's kind of the treatment that Cassavetti's films, I think, would receive today. Yeah. Uh, but the crazy thing is you wouldn't see films like these made today by a studio, at least not by Hollywood, oh, independently. No. Absolutely. But because of the fact that it is so uh, improv heavy improvisation and it's so uh, intimate, personal, and, you know, largely no plot, you would not see a film like this made by a studio. There's no way. No. I mean, honestly, it's like you, you, you are right. It's like, it, it's hard to imagine a mainstream uh, audience getting to see movies like Shadows or Faces, period. 
I mean, yeah. unless it's a huge hit at a film festival like Sundance, yeah. it's not necessarily going to get picked up by a studio. So they're not going to try to, they're not going to try to give it a platform release. And well, I mean, platform releases are barely even a thing anymore. But yeah. um, you know, you you just don't. You're right. You just don't have that market for this type of thing. And I mean, this is. You know, it's like Cassavetti's work, unfortunately, is the type of movie, is the type of stuff that you would see do the film festival circuit. And yep. then, you know, you might find it on a streaming platform later. Exactly. Well, depending on whatever deal comes into place. And yeah. that is completely deflating. <laughs> oh, exactly. And, you know, oh, we should also preface by saying we saw, I mean, at least I saw these films. I don't know about you. I saw these films on Max. Like these films are available. All, actually, oh, yeah. a lot of yeah. the majority, the majority of Cassavetti's films are available on Max. So I was pleasantly surprised to see that. I didn't realize it had a home. Uh, I'm thinking I'm gonna have to buy the Blu-rays. I'm gonna have to uh, search on Amazon Prime and rent for like three ninety nine or whatever right. for each film. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that they're all available. So that that's great that that there's uh, that uh, a streaming platform like Max is. I guess sort of promoting his films. I, yeah. I wish that I wish it was more of a push to well, let, I mean let... well, I mean, you know, Max is interesting because of the fact that I mean, ever since that ever since the that one came in, they've always had like one of the deeper Yeah. One of the deeper uh catalog uh catalogs of uh older films. And I really appreciate that. A big part of yeah. that I think is that TCM uh brand that they're they were pushing as well. And that's yeah. kind of a part of it i actually saw these on criterion channel and so oh, yeah, um true. True. Yep. so yeah i i watched them all on criterion channel but yes like you said they are on max as well but yeah i mean you know that's 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 the thing it's like there are some films that you know and there there are some films i've seen i saw 40 years ago at the atlanta film festival i had no yeah. idea if there's any distribution in america for them period and yeah. I really love them. And mm -hmm. it's like, there's some words like, oh, that's, and like I said, you would find it on a streamer. It's like, oh, okay, that's on Tubi, or that happened to go on Prime. And, you know, what is, what is, as, as a filmmaker yourself, and we'll get back to Cassavetes, but one of the things yeah, I, no one of the things I love talking about, talking with you is that you're a filmmaker yourself. And mm -hmm. so you have had to, deal with a lot of the same uh situations and circumstances regarding funding regarding getting mm -hmm. things made regarding distribution that mm -hmm. a filmmaker like Cassavetti's had to deal with um mm -hmm. what is what is the hardest thing about making a film what what is the hardest thing about getting a film seen now Oh, that's a that's a loaded one. <laughs> no, because really, there's so many variables to it. I mean, the hardest thing about getting a film seen is, I mean, festivals festivals are great too. I love film festivals, mm -hmm. but they're difficult because you have the middleman, who well, the judges really, who whether they accept or don't accept it, and that's very difficult because. Um, it, it, because every festival has a specific theme that they're looking to, I guess, sort of uh, project or they're looking to showcase, and which is totally fair. Um, and every year you get different trends. Um, and that's part of the problem is, you know, you, often 
very often filmmakers they're making what's in them and like what's inside them. They're not really yeah. thinking about they're not thinking about trends really. They're just thinking about what's within them. Um, and w- whether it happens to hit the right place, right time, that's pure luck, I, I think. Um, and you know, and 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 the thing about film festivals too is a lot of times you're going to get more no's than yeses, which very often new filmmakers don't don't realize um, a whole lot. And um, it can be discouraging, it can be very disheartening, but ultimately, it's not always because of the quality of your of your work, but purely because of selection process they may have selected a film with a very similar theme already or the filmmaker is close live could probably live closer to the festival and they know they're going to attend so they want them mm-hmm. they want they want their film of, of with the same theme to uh to, uh, to screen that way they have a filmmaker that they could have with the q a there's there are just so many factors to it um you know specifically state festivals um they're going to favor the locals because you know they're local to the town and all and that's totally understand that um so there's there's a lot of factors to it so i think that's hard and then uh, then as far as distribution goes so i've only made short films so far in my career um i produced a, i produced a feature i've uh, been involved in many in a few feature films never have i directed one though uh but but even with short films it's very difficult to get distribution because the fact of the matter is uh, short films there is nobody in short films there, there's just not and there really is no audience for them other than film festivals i mean yes there's amazon prime which was accepting independent films um and they were and they were actually hosting many short films from independent filmmakers including my own those of people i've I, i've known uh but unfortunately amazon decided that they no longer wanted to host short films and independent films and they they took them down just two years ago, they, they, they took them down. Um, and, uh, they're no longer accepting them. And it's very sad, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are platforms like shorts TV. There are, um, other sort of similar, uh, short film platforms. Uh, the only problem is where can you get those apps? You know, I think Roku hosts them, things like that. And again, it's just getting the awareness out there that these apps do exist where you can see short films outside of YouTube or Vimeo and sharing your link on social media ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very hard. It's just finding someone to host your film. Uh, and uh, it's especially difficult if you're sort of going against the grain and you're doing something that's a little bit different. So for any filmmaker that's listening, uh, you know, uh, don't give up. Just keep using your voice. Don't, you know, don't try to appease to anything. Just use your own voice and just keep trugging along. I mean, I know it's such a cliche thing, but really it's true. That's the only way you're going to get out there is if you just find that one person that's going to say yes. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is some, find that one person that believes in your vision and believes in your film and wants to showcase it. Yeah. And one of the things I would definitely say, I mean, you, you know, me, I've, I've covered, uh, I've covered the Atlanta Film Festival. I've covered Renegade yep. Film Festival. I've covered Sundance. You know, one of the and I've covered Fantasia Fest. And one of the things I would personally say, as as a critic, as somebody who's attended a wide variety of film festivals in a wide variety of ways, just because it's not one of the big name film festivals does not mean it's not worth taking a chance on submitting your your work there. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen some fantastic short films at stuff like Rangade. I've seen some fantastic stuff at the Atlanta Film Festival, which is 
you know, it's yeah. not a small film festival, but it's it, like you said, it is kind of a local one. You get a lot of Georgia yeah. filmmakers here. But the thing is, I mean, some of my favorite films I've seen in the past few years have come from those fe- film festivals. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's you know, it's like just because you didn't get into Sundance doesn't mean you're not going to get in anywhere. You know, yeah. take the chance to look really explore, go deep into some of these film festivals. Obviously, sir, you know, obviously do research on them. You don't want to yes. necessarily just submit to anything because no, there. No. I know for a fact that there are some that are just not great at all, and right. sometimes downright corrupt. But um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you you definitely yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, even if it's just a uh, small little two day film festival, it's like it's not worth it's it's still worth taking a chance on to get your work out there. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, again, going back to Cassavetes, he had to do that. Those that came after him had to do that. Uh, I know Scorsese often talked about his struggles with getting films made, uh, and Cassavetes was a big influence on him. And you could see that, especially in the uh, uh, in the films of Scorsese in the um, in the decade of the 70s. I feel like that Cassavetes influence is very much present, particularly Main Streets. You know, it's funny watching Shadows and Faces. I kept thinking, wow, Me Streets reminds me reminds me a lot of these of these two movies because there is that sort of same style. And Mean Streets, that was not I mean, it's a it's considered a masterpiece now, but back then he had a hard time getting that film out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um going back to Cassavetes and talking about faces, uh, you know, like I already said, you you can tell immediately that this movie just feels very different and very much yes. he he's very he's so much grown as a filmmaker in the decade since shadow mm-hmm. and the thing that i really loved about faces is that this movie it this movie's episodic faces is episodic as well yes. but it's because of but that's only because of the fact that he builds on he's he builds up these long extended scenes that yep. almost could play as short films in their own right. Um, like you oh, could yeah. you could take some of these scenes and just take them out of the film and put them in put them on their own and they would work as a short film. Yes. And yeah. that's one of the things that I think is so extraordinary about faces as well as yes. a woman under the influence. They're like Two sequences in particular in Woman Under the Influence that are probably some of the best short films you'll ever watch. Absolutely. I know, and I know exactly what scenes you're talking about, but yes. Um, uh, and that's the extraordinary thing about, that I liked about Faces, probably more so than Shadows, is that it was more plot-driven, but yet it still retained that improv- improvisatory element yeah. to it. Uh, and it also retained that sort of cinema verite style uh filmmaking um but uh no you but you're absolutely right particularly the dancing scene um towards like the last quarter of the film mm. uh like like that scene and also when um uh i'm, I'm drawing a blank now the, the, there's like there's scenes very much like the dancing scene where the characters sort of meander around but i felt like this time cassavetes had more of a through line going on in this film if that yeah. makes sense um 
like the opening scene with Richard um, and uh, Gene, and I, f- I forget the other character's name that's with them, but they're having, they're just drinking and they're just like, they're just laughing yeah. the whole time. <laughs> it's great. Then when he goes home to his wife, uh, Maria, and they're, they're, they're laughing through argument and it's great. They're sitting at the table. He's having his dinner. He's drinking a beer. She's sitting across the table on the other side and they're just laughing as they're arguing. And it was like, it was some of the best acting I've seen uh, uh, across these films. Yeah. The thing, the thing about faces is that is so extraordinary is that, and really it's kind of the same thing with women under the influence, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Faces is essentially about the deterioration of a marriage. Yes. And, but the thing is, you don't necessarily get a clear idea of why either one is genuinely unhappy in their marriage until yep. the husband, played by John Marley, simply mm-hmm. tells her at that dinner table, mm-hmm. I want to get a divorce. Mm hmm which yep. sends her off on her own journey. And I love the fact that there's there's this journey that both of these characters have apart from each other after that moment. And it's just only in a few scenes. It's like him going back to Jenna Rollins and, you know, and then her with the with Seymour Castle's character and her almost ODing. And the thing is, it's like, then they come back and then they come back together and to a certain extent you can you can see a bit of regret on either face mm-hmm. but at the same time you can also tell that things are probably broken forever between them yeah mm-hmm. not just because of what they've done but because of what's been revealed by you know that they you feel like their true feelings have been made known for probably the first time in their marriage without a doubt and you know i i love the fact that she ends up staying up to him in a way that is very much kind of the opposite where she he felt he you felt like he was being her down at that dinner scene earlier Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no definitely and um uh, yeah, no, I love that element of it, and as well as, um, and again, uh, there's a few things going on here that sort of are thematic throughout these three films. Uh, for one thing, jazz, especially shadows and faces, jazz plays a huge role, not just in the soundtrack, but also uh, in the in the music that's within the frame of yeah. the shot. You know, whether a character is listening to music or dancing to music. Mm-hmm. And very much the way the films are made, they're very jazz-like, you, you know. So, uh, so it almost makes sense how jazz is sort of uh, going is sort of a through line between those two films. And even the endings of all three of these films, they they don't have a clear cut ending. They're they're very much open. You're not really sure what's going to happen to the characters. The destination's unknown. I love that about these films is that you were sort of left to uh, sort of imagine, okay, what's going to happen now with these characters, particularly the end of faces, because you're not exactly sure what happens with this marriage. Are they going to continue? Are they going to keep it going? Are they going to go their separate ways, stay married and have their affairs on the side? Like, I mean, who knows? We don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, no, I mean, even in shadows, you kind of get that too. I mean, you, you get the fact that she's, that she's in a happier, kind of in a happier place with, the relationship that she's in now, but is she, 
is she really right. going to, is that something that's going to be a long lasting thing? You know, mm-hmm. with faces, I can, you know, like you said, I mean, are they going to stay together and just kind of, you know, just stay together for this fa- simple fact of staying together and just kind of live out their truth to themselves? Or mm-hmm. are they going to just kind of accept the fact that this is not for them and go on? Because you don't necessarily feel like either of the relationships they go into with Jenna Rowland's character for him and with Seymour Castle's character for her are permanent. Right. They're basically just trysts, essentially. They are. They are. Yeah. And, you know, and ultimately it's, it, it's a film, not just about marriage or relationship relationships. It's also a film about aging really. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. in the opening scene, um, uh, um, the, the Frost character, along with his friend, they're reminiscing about a time where they would have, where they were bachelors and how they, they missed those times. Uh, so really it's about aging as well, I think, as uh, in addition to a broken relationship or a broken marriage. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, that I, it's one of the things I do find very interesting, at least about Chow's and Faces. I mean, Woman Under the Influence is a completely different beast. Yeah, but, you know, with with the first two, you have these men who are in very thinking about things in very, I mean, at the time, it would have been very contemporary thinking as far as, you know, what it's like to get older as a, you know, as a man of thinking about those times where you were younger, you didn't have the responsibilities that you have, and feeling mm-hmm. like, though, you and and kind of feeling like you needed that freedom and wanted that freedom back, you know. Right. Now you think about it, now, you know. I I can't imagine being, I I I dread the idea of being, you know, being where I was in like my twenties. I I was I was messed yeah. up in my twenties. <laughs> I I would be miserable now if I was still in the same way, same place I was in my twenties. Right. But right. you know, at the same time though, it's like. But and then with the women, you know, it it's almost like there's this there's this awakening to possibilities beyond like what society kind of expects from us with both of with the women in both of these films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and and we should also preface by saying that uh, uh, Gina Rollins is John Cav- John Cassavetti's wife. Uh, yeah. For those that. Those I don't know, and she was she played a very um, uh, intricate role in all his films, uh, mm. particularly. I mean, and like she was not in Shadows, but they were still married at the time. But she, this was like the I think I think this was the first time they really worked together. I, I could be wrong, but and and again, she from there on she played a big role in almost all his films, um, including Woman Woman Under the Influence, where she has. <laughs> she gives a she gives an outstanding performance in that film. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we we will we will get to that. There's a ton to talk about with that. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. So looks like Jenna Rollins. It looks like the first film she was in of Cassavetes was, uh, Child Is Wing from uh '63, which also had oh, okay. Burt Lancaster and Judy Garland in it. Um. So uh yeah, that was that was her first time on screen for uh Cass okay. But That's like cool. you said, I mean they were married and I mean, you know, the the thing that 
I'll imagine you you have to have a lot of trust on both sides to write some of the material that Cassavetes writes for uh for Rollins here. Like, you know, you have to have a lot of trust in her to be able to perform it, and you have to she has to have a lot of trust in him to play some of this stuff. Cause I mean she she she's essentially a hooker in faces. Right. She's yeah. essentially a hooker in faces. And right. um you know, in you know, woman under the influence, she's well, we we'll, we'll, we can we can get to that, but yeah, yeah. there's a yeah, there's there's a lot of really uh there's a lot of really tough material for her to play in that movie and oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll go ahead and dive into it. 1974's Woman Under the Influence. Mm-hmm. And uh Jenna Rollins plays a housewife and a mother um Mabel who is coming undone. I mean, that's kind of a common theme between all of these. You you kind of feel like something is coming undone in all three of these movies. And I mean, Faces, it's a marriage. In in Woman Under the Influence, it's Mabel. And um, yeah. you know, we don't one of the things that I I really love about this movie is that we never really figure out why. What is it that's causing her to feel this way? Is it something that's just that she just her brain is not wired properly? Is it alcohol? I mean, we kind of get the impression that it could be alcohol because I mean, she drinks at this party she's hosting for the kids, but also her mother in law at her homecoming is like, Yeah, we don't really want alcohol here while she's coming back. So it's like we never really get a sense of what is causing no. her to act out the way that she is. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of the reason this movie is so impactful. Yep. Without a doubt. I, um, you know, it's funny you mentioned the why. Uh, in, in all three of these films, we really don't know the why of a lot of these situations. And in some ways, that's okay. Because yeah. you're so immersed that it almost doesn't matter. It's particularly in this case, um, you know, and, and Peter Falk plays the husband, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, Nick, and, uh, he's fantastic as per usual. Um, and he actually, he actually put money into this picture. Uh, I think he put him, I think I read somewhere, he put about $500,000 yeah. uh, from doing yeah. <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, uh, you know, and like you said, Cassavetes mortgages home and this was originally going to be a play. Uh, but Gina, um, but um, but uh, Gina Rollins, uh, she read the script and loved it, but didn't feel she could do that for eight nights in a row. Yeah, and that, that's when Cassavetes decided to uh, commit it to film. And um, uh, it's a very different film from the previous two because, again, like I said, the cinematography, the photography is very different compared to the other two. It does have some touches of that semi verite style but for the most part the camera's further away yeah longer lines it's more voyeuristic which mm. is appropriate which is almost appropriate almost like we're not supposed to be seeing her episodes we're not supposed to be seeing these private intimate moments of this of this broken family uh and it works it works beautifully yeah i mean we're we're just basically watching as things start to deteriorate for her yeah and I mean, you know, it's like you you brought up Peter Falk, who's absolutely fantastic. And I love 
one of the things that I love about this is that you you get this moment um late in around the middle to late end of the film where he's kind of on his own taking care of the kid. And mm-hmm. you kind of see that he he in a way he's very lost without her. As much mm-hmm. chaos as she's brought to the marriage at this point, she's very he's very lost in terms of how to interact with his kids and how to be a dad just in general. And I mean, it's not something that's hammered home with any degree of like sledgehammer. It's just very subtle. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, you know, the the scene that that sequence kind of ends with him, you know, giving giving one of his kids a sip of beer. So I mean, you know, it it's not right. unsubtle. It's not completely right. subtle, but at the same time, it's yeah. it's one of those things where it's like that's that basically just kind of puts the exclamation point on what we've seen in that like 10 to 15 minute stretch of film. Right. Right. Oh, well, we also can't forget the, uh, the spaghetti sequence of the, yeah, well, at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic sequence because it goes, <laughs> it goes from like nice pleasantries to uncomfortableness to what's going on here. Is yeah. he gonna, it's just like, <laughs> It's just such a beautiful escalation. But like you said earlier, you could take that piece out. It could be its own like little short film and you could get the full story of what's happening of this mm-hmm. deterioration of his marriage, his family. Um, and, you know, it's great because, you know, again, it's a sequence. <laughs> any other studio or any uh, like the, the mindset of today's, you know, thoughts on filmmaking, any other studio or I don't know, producer, whomever. They would look at sequences like that and say, yeah, you know, cut this down or cut it out completely because it doesn't advance the story, but it does <laughs> ultimately. Well, I mean, going to, you know, I mean, going to Scorsese, I mean, you know, the the thing is, it's like Warner Brothers in when they were testing Goodfellas, they wanted him to take right. out the scene with his mother. And that was collectively oh, yeah. one of the scenes that test screens were saying, no, I love that moment. Yeah, and yeah. and the thing is, it's like you can't think of that movie without that moment, and yeah. so yeah, I mean, basically, studio look, studios at this point don't really know anything <laughs> about filmmaking, you know, even <laughs> even some of the best ones do. That that's it's yeah, some of the yeah. minor, some of the mini majors, some of the indie studios. I mean, they they have a good idea, but and they're supportive, but ultimately, the majors at this point they don't they don't know a damn thing about filmmaking. Um, you know, they, they look at it as a com- commodity and it's something that Scorsese has been correct on for decades at this point. So, yeah, I mean, the days of United Artists gone. I mean, oh, yeah, that, that was that was the last I guess. I don't know if I don't know if United Artists was necessarily a major, but they were up there. They were, they were know, major they, for a while for a long time. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I. But, you know, they were like really, I guess, to me anyway, really the last major studio to really think about the the artistry of the film. Uh, I mean, and, uh, and you know, there's one certain event, which we've covered before, that yeah. sort of turned that around. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, listen to, listen to our uh, discussion on Heaven's Gate and we'll, uh, right. we, we can, we, we expose a bit, we talk a bit more about that. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And that was a, that was a podcast that you were on um right. well when you yeah. brought that to the table because you're such a fan of shimino 
and oh, yeah, um, no. but no, I mean, it, it's funny because even even the even the iteration of Unite Arts that Tom Cruise tried to do in the two thousands, just like what happened to it? It just basically basically yeah. flew by the wayside. I don't even know what happened to it at that right. point. Um, yeah. in it's yeah, I mean that studio basically doesn't exist in any functional form. Okay. But I mean, you could you you know we we. I talked about uh, MGM last year. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's as indicative of uh, of an example as well because that's bounced from owner to owner over the years, and now that Amazon's got it, it's basically, you know, it's it's basically a subsidiary of the biggest company and one of the yeah, biggest like, companies in the world now. Yep, and like you know, and Disney owns Fox, and yeah. you know, Fox. Like so, it's all this migration of these big companies and studios merging with uh, an even bigger conglomerate. I mean, that's sort of where we're heading. Where all all these all, all these big studios they're soon they're soon they're going to be owned by Apple, Amazon, Disney, um, all all those big companies. That that's what's yeah. going to basically um, if it hasn't already. Yeah, <laughs> and, basically. Uh, well, yeah, and, and, but, and the thing is, it's like you know, it's it's not like it's not like Fox. It's not like Disney or Amazon are taking on these studios to create, you know, to create new film. I mean, let's be clear, they're they're doing it to to enhance their own reputation yeah. and to own franchises that they can exploit. I mean, you know, it's like Amazon's ba- Amazon basically bought MGM so they can be in the James Bond business and the Rocky and sure. Creed business. And sure. I mean, you know, Disney, you know, Disney looks at Fox's stuff or 20th Century Studios stuff and they they see something like, "Oh yeah, we can, you know, we can use them to burnish, you know, Hulu and stuff like that." I mean, mm-hmm. it it's just it's, you know, like I said, the majors they they don't they don't care about film. They they don't care about filmmaking, but yeah, I mean, going but going back to Woman Under the Influence, you're absolutely that right. That scene with the spaghetti, and that wasn't necessarily the scene I was referring to, but that is an excellent example of a scene that you could take out of a take out of the movie and basically turn into a short film, and yeah. you'd be mesmerized by it. Oh yeah, uh, and you get yeah. all the information out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. No, the scenes I was thinking of, I was I was thinking of the scene where. Uh, Nick brings the doctor in to yep. have her committed, yep. and then the, and then her reunion, and then her homecoming. Oh, those yeah. were the scenes I was thinking of. Where it's like, you know, the it. But I mean, all of those major scenes, like they all have a very clear beginning, where you you understand where things are at the beginning, then you see things escalate. And yep. the way that escalates through editing, through camera work, and like you said, the camera is very static in Woman Under the Influence, but it's always interesting because yep. of what you were looking at and how he frames it. That yeah, is... even... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, uh, right from the get-go, you noticed that immediately. The, the colors of the photography, they're so lush. Yeah. And they're, you know, very bright. Um, there it's more, and the lighting is more calculated. It's more stylistic, uh, than the previous two. Um, and, uh, there's just, you could tell that you could tell from the first few minutes that this is a filmmaker working at the top of his form. 
mm-hmm. at this point in time in his career, without a doubt. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is even, you know, the the leap that I talked about when it comes to uh, shadows and faces. I mean, this is this is almost. I mean, I don't know if it's quite as substantial a leap in technical right. qualities, but it really is. And yes. I mean, the fact that he shoots in color, and you you mentioned the colors, and one of the things that it, it's funny because of the fact that. I I was thinking about watching it. And it's like I don't know. It felt to a certain extent. It felt like maybe one of the first real indictments of the suburbs and suburban life, because of the fact that you get the idea that they are in the suburbs. You know, they're yeah. middle class people. They're they're middle class family. I mean, he works for sure. the city. She, yeah. but he's but she's able to stay at home and raise the. The kids, but I mean, you know, they have they have kids over from the neighborhood and stuff like that. So I mean, mm-hmm. is suburban life what's causing her to act out this way? It could be. You can certainly make a read on that. You can yeah. certainly make a read on the fact that, you know, one of the first things that happens is Nick has to break off a date with uh with uh Mabel. Uh, because yeah. of the fact that he's got work late, and yeah. she, they, you can tell that they'd been planning it. That her, his mother took the kids to her place for the night, and then they right. come back the next day, and uh, you know, we we see how that unfolds. But even when he comes home, you know, he's coming home, and he's like, you know, we've heard him say it's like, oh, I'm I'm not gonna be coming in, and it's like I'm gonna spend the day with my wife. Well, he brings his entire crew over. Yeah. That's where the spaghetti scene happens. Right, and right. so it's like, in a way, you're watching, in a way, that scene plays like her reacting to him, yep. taking this time that they were supposed to have together and basically making about other people. And so mm-hmm. that's another turn of the screw. And yes. again, there's so many, it's such a brilliant. It's such a brilliant script. It's such a brilliant. Each scene escalates everything else up mm-hmm. until that moment where she's finally committed. Mm-hmm. And then we yeah. get a bit of a downturn where we see what it's like with him on his mm-hmm. own. Right. And then you get this idea that, you know, he, he can't necessarily handle this. He isn't he, he isn't as familiar with his kids as he needs to be. Right. He can't yeah. be a dad on his own. Right. And then when we see her return, it's it's just such a it it's such that is that is such a, a brilliant slow burn where it's like you can feel like she's kind of normal, but at the same time, she's not because she's completely abnormal compared to how we saw her at the beginning. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no. She when she <laughs> arrives back home, she's a lot more apprehensive. She's very calculated. Then he takes her aside as like, no. He's like, no, he's like, no, he's he's like, no, give me, you know, he's like, you know, give me he's like, be yourself, be yourself. And then she comes out and slowly the escalation just builds up and builds up and yeah. builds up and she fought she's you know, without giving too much away, it comes to a uh very disturbing conclusion. I'll I'll say that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> It it does, and uh, you know. But the thing is, it's like I, 
you know, one of the things that is, you know, you you talked about the fact that all three of these endings are kind of open to interpretation. I do agree to a certain extent, but I think one of the things that is so striking about Woman Under the Influence is the fact that it does kind of feel like at the end, there's this understanding, there's silent understanding between the two of them that they're probably better together right than they would be apart not just yes. as a couple but as parents to their yep. kids mm-hmm. and maybe going forward we're going to see a change in the way things go but at the same time you're not sure because like you said it conclude it climaxes that moment climaxes at such an unsettling place because of what it implies because of what it seems like she might have to she might feel like she needs to do and there's it does still feel like there's a lot of things that are going unsaid Mm -hmm. oh yeah without a doubt and uh again going back to uh some of the other long extended scenes uh of the beer scene for example that was uh i got kind of a kick out of that because i was like well that that seems like a very peter falk thing you would do (laughs) uh, but but i mean you know and 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 then you kind of look at that scene like in a serious way and you kind of like you kind of wonder okay him doing that she's not around what you know uh you know so it's like who you know who is the more substantial parent here lack of a better word uh because i mean when she's around, her tendencies tend to leave the kids a bit apprehensive. When he's on his own, he's giving them beer. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, it's like it's a which of the two evils here is like it is really better for the children. And it's like it's it's a very fascinating study on on the on parenting, I guess, you know, and about uh of uh marriage, you know. So it's it's really fascinating. And of course the birthday party scene as yeah. well, uh from the uh father of uh, the um Jensen, I think his name is. Um he comes over with his kids and he's not sure if he wants to leave them there. Yeah. And, and by the way, I knew that actor looked very familiar and surely enough, he was in Raging Bull. He was one of the, um, uh, uh, corner men. Oh, okay. uh, Mario, Mario Gallo is his name. Oh, okay. Uh, there's one pivotal scene in Raging Bull where Jake, Jake LaMotta, uh, throws a fight with Ben Foster. They're in the locker room and this trainer is in the same actor, Mario Gallo as the trainer, uh, he says to him, uh, you know, uh, forget about fighting, you know, uh, j- j- just stop fighting. And he starts crying, starts crying for Jake LaMotta. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like I knew he looked familiar. So that was, <laughs> that was a cool, cool little uh, bridge there between Cassavetes and Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and that's, that's, that, that is the thing about Scorsese is that he would, he, he would, he would take people and, people who had worked with people who inspired him if he could and put them in his own work. And that's one of the things that I love about, I mean, you know, you, you see the same thing when Truffaut shows up in close encounters of the third kind. I mean, you know, you, you see that these filmmakers who grew up on film and would become phenomenal filmmakers in their own right, they would take their inspirations and pay homage to him in very direct ways. Oh and, yeah. I mean, even you know, and even even Lucas. It's like one of the things that you see that's interesting about Star Wars and THX eleven thirty eight and Rares of the Lost Stark is that he he's taking off of he's 
riffing on the genres that inspired him off of the ideas that inspired him. And that's one of the things that we don't get as much anymore. I mean, they're phenomenal filmmakers out now. There's some truly exciting filmmakers out now, but yeah. you don't necessarily, but you feel like they're coming from it to a certain extent. There are some that are trying to pay tribute to filmmakers very directly, but yeah. not in a way that's nearly as interesting as what we see that saw out sure. Sazing Spielberg and Lucas and all those filmmakers. It's so true. And uh, one note about Spielberg, actually, which I actually didn't know this. I guess apparently he was a run, he was an unpaid uh, runner or volunteer on Shadows. Oh, like yeah, he would that's like, right. Yeah, that's right. So I actually, that, I think it was Faces. Faces, right? Okay, yeah, it was yeah. Faces because that was the one because because uh, Shadows was in New York. Yeah, and uh, Faces was in L.A. But yeah, I did remember reading that. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was very fascinating uh, to, to to know that fact. Um, but yeah, just a random tidbit that I yeah. remembered. But no, you're absolutely but, uh, right. I yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, but uh, but yeah, but uh, I have to say again how amazing Gina Rollins is in Woman Under the Influence. I just could not get. <laughs> I, she was incredible, and I correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't she get nominated for an Oscar? Or did she, she did. One for yeah, I think she she got nominated for. Yeah, she got nominated for actress, and she get. I think Cassavetes got nominated for directing. Is either yeah, because yeah, I think he got nominated for writing for uh, Faces, yes. but was directing for Woman Under the Influence. But yeah, uh, no, I mean it's it's truly one of the best performances. It's probably one of the best performances I've ever seen, and you know, oh, it, it's one of those things where it's like that that performance is so interesting because of the fact that one of the things that I, I wrote down as I was um as, as I was taking notes about when I watched it this morning and one of the things I'm putting out in my review about the movie is that I love th there are moments where that what we're what we're seeing Falk and Rollins do it doesn't feel very natural to the way humans interact yeah, but it feels very authentic to uh -huh. those characters, uh -huh. and that's where we get our empathy for those characters from. And it's it's just because I mean, you know, if Falk, if if Nick was a real person treating his wife that way, you would <coughs> like there are times where you would wonder, is he an abuser? Like, but yeah. at the same time, you you see the and. But, I mean, because of the fact that we followed them and have seen them in their own intimate moments, we see that basically when he's hitting her at times, he's doing so to try to handle the situation as best he can. Right. He he's trying right. to he he's trying to handle the situation that she's in. She to try to calm her down in a way, but it really right. just only builds things further oh absolutely yeah no that's one of the fascinating things is that you see him do that and you ask yourself as a viewer you ask yourself as a viewer that you know uh is this justified is it, and like it, it it's sort of a challenging weird question that you get because i mean obviously i mean obviously it's it's poor behavior yeah you know it's a 
it's abusive behavior. But at the same time, you wonder, is that the only way he could he could handle her? Is that the only way he can get her to calm down? I mean, you would hope not. But yeah, like you said, you develop so much empathy because there is that abusive behavior going on. But yet you wonder, but yet you wonder what, uh, you wonder how else Nick can uh, bring his wife back down to earth. It's very, very sad situation. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there, there are also times where you look at Mabel and you wonder how much of this is her acting out too, especially yeah. in that scene at the beginning yeah. with the spaghetti. Yeah. Like you, you certainly use by the time the climax come of the movie comes, you definitely feel a bit differently in terms of where her, that her issues are probably considerably deeper than even we understand or yeah. even they understand at this point. Yeah, because I mean, it's implied that she does have an, um, a drinking problem, but we don't really see her drink that much, oddly no. enough. It, so you, so you have to wonder: okay, is this is this behavioral for sure? You know, is this a condition? Is this from alcohol? Is this something else we're not seeing? Is this just her uh, being this way to get attention? To get attention? I hate saying that, but I mean, is it that? Is it? Uh, we have we have no idea, and that's kind of the beauty of it: is you're sort of taking on this interesting journey where you're sort of uh learning with her and with nick as to what exactly is going on because yeah. you know because i mean i mean really we don't know <laughs> we really mm-hmm. don't know no uh this this was this was such a uh phenomenal watch i'm i'm still on a high about because of the fact that i did end up watching it end up watching it today um Same. before the podcast and it's like it, it's it it's just such a it was such a riveting experience i knew this is one that i've had on my list for a while even more in shadows and faces i mean right. you know so it's like oh i, I want now that we're talking cassavetti so it's like okay well, well i'm gonna finally watch this and boy did it not disappoint me. i mean none of these really disappointed i mean and oh. i i love that like i said i mean i i just love the fact that it's like you can you can see this evolution of him as a filmmaker and this growth of him as a filmmaker and as a storyteller too. It's just absolutely extraordinary. And the fact that he's, he's not afraid to have us come to our own conclusions about what's going on. Right. Exactly. No. And it makes you appreciate him as a filmmaker. And it really makes you want to see more of what he had, what he had to offer. I mean, opening night, uh, killing of a Chinese bookie. Um, uh, um, um, I'm just naming random films of his. Uh, uh, many, many Mankiewicz. You know, there, there's just <laughs> so many that that he's. Oh, Love Streams um, yeah. as well, which all enough was produced by Canon Films, who are <laughs> not really known for their their artistry. <laughs> no, but like uh, like they like A's all overs talked about when they talked about Love Stream love streams it's like you know it's one of those things where it's like you know what canon probably thought hey you know what we'll put throw some money at cassavetes maybe we'll get some oscar uh-huh. buzz off of it uh-huh. um you know and then you had gloria as well uh in the early 80s which uh general rollins was also nominated for an oscar for and right. um did you ever see the sharon stone version of that no i haven't it's it's i mean it's you know it's okay but i I can't remember if I've, you know what? I might've seen that. I might've seen that film from Cassavetes just because I, yeah. I'd seen 
the Sharon Stone one. So it's like, oh, I want to see the original version. Yes. But I can't remember if I but I can't remember if I really had. Um yeah. Yep. but yeah, uh no, he his his work it does make me want to uh dive in a bit more about uh about Cassavetti's work. And you know, it's it he's somebody who he would take he's also somebody who would take acting jobs to get money to make his films. Yep. And it's really, you know, it, you know, even, even in the seventies and eighties where it's like the seventies were, are held up as this bastion of creativity for filmmakers, for mainstream filmmakers, even in the birth of the, you know, the film school generation of Hollywood. But at the same time, even, even in the seventies, Cassavetes is having to do stuff to, uh, Gez movies made and it's like how how does that happen for a filmmaker but i mean i i do think to a certain extent i mean you you look at his work in these three films and you can kind of get it because of the fact that his films are still very much his films are still very uh challenging as far as how they approach things structurally Yep. Yep. There's no clear cut structure. And again, he's working in a form that's reminiscent of French New Wave. Uh, You know, like I kept thinking of 400 Blows as I was watching Shadows and Face. You know, because that film uh, also works with a sort of um, loose, not that it was improvised, but but a very sort of loose style, not so much a structural film, 400 Blows. uh, But again, that was sort of truthful. Same with Godard, you know, Breathless, obviously. Very loose in its uh, uh, in its execution, uh, impro- very impro- improvisatory as well. Um, so he's working in that form, which um, was not exactly welcomed in America early on, um, you know. And then it took a while before it became embraced. And again, going back to Woman Under the Influence, like I said earlier, he was taking reels of film theater to theater just to exhibit the movie because no one wanted to distribute it. Yeah, yeah, and. Um... No, it it's uh he he passed away in 1989 and it's like he he's somebody who I I can see if he had been working now I can see maybe getting some maybe getting like IFC or Neon or some of some of those film yeah. studios behind him um sure. but yeah I mean in the 70s and 80s it's like yeah it was 60s 70s and 80s I mean yeah he, he's he's still a bit avant-garde but I mean he the fact of the matter is he he paved the way for the independent boom that would come in the late 80s and then the 90s would just have the explosion yeah i yeah i mean and even uh in the early 90s i as i was watching shadows i also kept being reminded of or i should say or i should say <laughs> the other way around clerks yeah. kind of has the same loose style as um shadows faces all that uh so that influence it goes down the line more than people probably realize because i mean you know it's funny because you you know it's like new filmmakers they'll look at a filmmaker today they'll look at like a famous filmmaker let's say i don't know i'll say kevin smith for example um uh he'll say oh i was influenced by so and so that person was influenced by somebody else and there's a whole chain of, of influences like through the years uh I'm sure a filmmaker that's working today, I can't think of one of the top of my head, but I'm sure someone out there was influenced by Scorsese. Scorsese was influ- influenced by Cassavetes. He was influenced by whomever. Yeah. Uh, you know, so 
it's amazing to get this sort of chain of film history where the generational influence goes from one to the next to the next, and then you develop a love for cinema of yesteryear. And I think that's important. Uh, especially if you're a filmmaker or a film critic. And to... and this is and and this is one of my favorite subjects and something that I wrote about a couple of years ago uh during one of the uh Scorsese uh, Marvel wars that were taking yeah. place. Uh sure. and you know one of the things that you know we 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 both have a shared ad- admiration and love of Scorsese. I mean I I I I'm I'm at the altar of his documentaries on American and Italian cinema sure. that's well that's well known by now um yeah. and uh but one of the things that I love about those is that it really taught me one of the most important lessons in terms of watching films <laughs> which is how do films lead you in the direction of other films I mean grant right. this this happened even before I watched those documentaries I was kind of doing it because of the fact I mean one of my more formative experiences was the crow the crow yeah. led me to follow alex Bryce going forward led me to watching brandon lee's films before he passed away but yeah. you know and we i think we talked about it in the tarkovsky discussion um you know there was one blurb and one review of the crow that mentioned talker by tarkovsky yeah that yeah. led me to eventually find that movie and that led me to tarkovsky mm-hmm. and like you said, I mean, you know, that's that's one of the things that's really kind of frustrating about a lot of film culture right now is that it it doesn't feel like people want to get out of their particular lanes of film watching. Like they mm-hmm. they fall in love with a particular type of film, that's all they're watch. And you know what? You know what? More power to you. That's fine. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with that because there's no one way to be a film lover. There really no. isn't. But if you're somebody who's more exploratory of the genre of the medium, take those opportunities, you know, watch a Scorsese film, you know, read about some of his influences, take in those influences. You know, right. if you know, and that's that's one of the things that I wrote about in uh a couple of years ago where it's like, you know, how much different would film culture be if some of these people who love Marvel mo- movies mm-hmm. and, you know, love say black Panther and mm-hmm. instead of just really appreciating what black Panther did to the MCU, maybe they check out Ryan Coogler's earlier film. If yeah. they love Dr. Strange two or the Spider-Man trilogy with Tobey Maguire, Check mm-hmm. out some of Sam Raimi's earlier work. Oh, you know, yeah. That will take you into a completely different view and might take you to the Cone Brothers and to all sorts of different areas. Yep. yep. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I get and Like, you just reminded me, too. Like, uh, you watch, like, Lord of the Rings, let's say. Look at Peter Jackson's earlier movies. I mean, vastly, very vastly different <laughs> than, 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 the epic, than, the, than the epic scale films that he ended up making. <laughs> and, uh, no, and it's funny because of the fact that even even movies like, uh, even movies, the movies immediately preceding that in his filmography, Heavenly Creatures and the Frighteners, yep. vastly uh-huh. different from that. Different, I mean, granted, yes. not as wildly different as meet the feebles and bad days, but still a completely different side of Peter Jackson 
that you wouldn't see afterward. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just absolutely. You know, I, I think the thing that both of us are getting at, and one of the things that one of the reasons that I you know, this I'm I'm so glad we had this discussion and this made me miss the past few years of really talking to you even more is the fact that it's like, you know, what we're talking about here is expanding the love of films that you have. You know, and one of mm -hmm. the things that I want to do on this podcast. I'm not just doing this podcast for myself to hear myself think. I mm -hmm. I love talking about subjects, especially subjects I'm not as familiar with, like Cassavetti. Like, yeah. I'd never seen any of these films before. So mm -hmm. I'm going to take the opportunity to watch these films for this podcast. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. when we when I discussed Barbara Stanwyck a couple months ago, I mm -hmm. hadn't seen three of those films before. I hadn't seen, there are a ton of films I had not seen before that I've watched for this podcast because I'm curious. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love, that's why I love that the format of this show has essentially become about film history. Yeah. And how to, this is kind of, this is a big part of how I explore film history. There are plain mm -hmm. places that are talking about mainstream movies. They're talking about contemporary films. And we sure. will do that. And I'll do that every once in a while. Sure. I want to talk about films that matter to me, first of all, but also my guests. And also, I mm -hmm. want to discover new films, too. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's not to say contemporary films don't have a place. They absolutely do. And there's a reason absolutely. that they exist. Yeah. But, but if you go to the yesteryear of cinema, the films that are out now, they had to come from somewhere. I mean, the medium... It, it it just always evolved. I mean, but the but the the but the ultimate um but the ultimate process is the same. You have a recording device and you have actors in front of the camera and you record that. I mean, that has not changed. What has changed though is how movies are made. I mean, uh so really nothing has changed with cinema except how we make movies today. But if you go but if you take, say, a Marvel movie, you look at that director's work. We'll go back a little bit further, a little bit further, then you realize, oh, they were they were influenced by so and so. So it's not necessarily as cold. I, I don't think as it's made out to be. There there's a reason th that movies are made the way they are today. It had to come from somewhere, ultimately. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's like that. That's that's the value of a filmmaker like Spil uh, Scorsese, and yep. value of that's that's a big part of why I love those documentaries is because of the fact that. He he goes through film history. It it's he he's like the favorite film professor you could ever have. Oh because yeah, his, yeah. <laughs> his depth of knowledge is extraordinary, and yeah. the way he talks about it is passionate. And yeah, you know that's 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 yeah. the thing that you need in order to really study film. Exactly. I mean, if you look at the shelf behind me, I don't know if viewers are going to see the video of this, but I mean, I, on my top shelf, I have a Hitchcock box set, Superman, and Police Academy. Vastly different, <laughs> but they all have an evolution. They all have some sort of background. I mean, I remember listening, this is so random, but I remember listening to the, uh, on the DVD of Police Academy 6, the director of it talked about his Hitchcock influences that he put into the movie. The director of police, I mean, Police Academy 6. I mean, come on. It, it's not a good movie, but <laughs> but there's an influence there as well. You know, he thought yeah. it's tab 
there's a specific shot in Police Academy Six that he that he took from Saboteur, one of Hitchcock's great movies. Mm-hmm. So, so even something as cynical as Police Academy Six, there's a there's I don't want to say artistry, but there is an influence there that. <laughs> so I guess what we're getting at is you could take the most cynical cash grab movie, and surely enough, if the director has some inkling of something in them. There's something there going back. Richard Donner with Richard Donner, even with uh, Superman one great filmmaker. He was amazing. He didn't, he did more than just, you know, than just stuff like that. He was a fantastic filmmaker, you know, one of my absolute favorites. I mean, I, I, I love Donner's like, I, I, uh, actually watched uh, his last film recently. I'm, I'm going to be on a, uh, I'm going to be guessing on podcast discussing it. And um, oh man, I I miss him so much. I I miss yeah. the films that we didn't get from him in the fifteen years before he died. And yep. you know, oh my God, he he was so good what he did. He was, he was, and I mean, even more uh, the directors of those of that series uh, again, Richard Lester, another great filmmaker. I mean, you know, before Superman two, he was and Superman three, he was doing stuff for the Beatles. You know, yeah. I mean. Sidney J. Fury, who did Superman 4, which arguably is, I shouldn't even say arguably, it's the worst one. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, 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 I mean, there's a filmmaker I follow on Facebook, um, and uh, his name is going to escape me, and I apologize in advance to this person, but he, uh, he, he's working on a documentary about Sidney J. Fury because he was a true Canadian artist, like film artist, before he got roped into doing Superman 4. So, again, there's artistry behind these people, even yeah. if the film, even if the mainstream picture that they're making is not so good, there is a talent. There's an inkling of something behind behind that. And you know, you got to sort of look for that. And you know, even some of the weaker Scorsese movies, there's an inkling of something there that makes it all the more great. Cassavetes as well. His last picture, Big Trouble, was not well received. I haven't seen it, but I'm curious to see it because it was apparently a studio job. So even Cassavetes, he got roped into a studio picture, yeah. one that he did not, one that he did not want to do, but he did it, and it was the last one before he passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, and your your story about uh, the watch listening to the uh, commentary about Police Academy Six makes me <laughs> lament the time that uh, films actually had, uh, you know, directors' commentaries and those type of extras where you know, you could actually learn this type of information from, um, you know, the and the fact that you took that from Police Academy 6, of all things, <laughs> that's, you know, it's like, that's that's just another sign of, it's more of a sign of the fact that it's like, the the times where studios would really let us be able to appreciate the artist and the craft and what the filmmaker had to say even in something as ridiculous as that is gone and it's unfortunate you know we we typically have to go to the boutique labels and hope something gets picked up by you know lorber or shock Shock factory or criterion or arrow to get stuff like that now yeah absolutely and i mean uh no it's absolutely true i mean most of what i buy for my collection is from is from those boutique labels because not only not only do they treat the films well the filmmakers themselves also get a chance to even 
comment on these movies. I mean, there was a release from uh, from Kino Labor of um, where is it? Oh, Tough Guys, Tough Guys with uh, Burt Lancaster and um, Kirk Douglas. Okay. The director of that was Jeff Canoe. Jeff Canoe also did Revenge of the Nerds and True Beverly Hills and um, uh, uh, a movie with Kathleen Turner where she plays like a spy of v- V.I. Wachowski. Oh, yes. Like yes, I remember that Thank movie. You. Yeah, and then Gotcha. So, and I actually did talk to him too, a part of my book. And he doesn't consider himself an artist. He said that time and time again. I'm not an artist. I'm not a film artist. I wish I was, but I'm not uh but he there's a thematic element through his films and they're all about underdogs and true beverly hills revenge of the nerds and uh tough guys they're all about the underdog and he does a commentary on tough guys where he talks about working with these great actors kirk douglas burt lancaster and i mean you know even there you learn a little bit of something even if tough guys is not the a masterpiece in filmmaking there's something there there's something to be said for the film artist behind it yeah. Um, and and the thing is, it's like, look, I know that we've spent as much time on this uh, on this podcast in particular talking about the filmmaking, about film love, about film, you know, about being a film fan as we have uh, Cassavetes. But honestly, it's like that's one of the things that I love about this conversation because of the fact that, like you said, I mean, he he inspired generations of uh, filmmakers after him and you know the fact of the matter is you can't talk about a lot of these filmmakers a lot of these major filmmakers without talking about how they've inspired other filmmakers right. and I mean you can't talk about Kurosawa about how without nope. talking about how he's inspired basically all of modern American action film you know oh, yeah. you, you can't talk about um without talking about how he inspired filmmakers like Spielberg when they were looking at their own past about or about you know how he was inspired by film noir how he was inspired by the American films that he watched you know you you can't talk about these filmmakers without discussing them within the context of film in general and I mean, you know, the fact that we get to these areas with Cassavetes, I mean, it it speaks to Cassavetes. It speaks to what he it did does. as a filmmaker. It does. That we were able to go here, and uh, I I could talk for a few hours more with I you on say. this, <laughs> um, but I do feel like we have to wrap it up. So, uh, Chris, but Chris, once again, as always, thank you very much for ha- for being on uh-huh. here. Thank you. It was so great to talk to you again. And um, where can people? Uh, I mean, I know you. You we you talked about what you're working on and where you're working now. But is there places online that people can find you? Oh sure. So uh, there is my my website predominantly, which has the stuff I've made or stuff I'm working on. Uh, that website is storiesmotion.com i'm also on facebook under stories in motion that's my production company uh instagram as well you can find me at stories in motion or my name uh chris esper um yeah so that's predominantly where you could find me is uh those three platforms but you know i also have a youtube channel a uh vimeo channel as well where i upload all my stuff um 
and again, film threat, I do, I sometimes do some writing for them. Um, so yeah, those are predominantly where you can find me. And, and be sure to check out some of, uh, Chris's, Chris's films. He, he's really, he, he's quite a good storyteller. He's, uh, there's, there's a reason that I've become pretty good friends with him over the years. And there's a reason that I really valued his opinion over the years on this podcast and why I've wanted to talk to him about so many of the filmmakers that we've talked about. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check out his work and, uh, but yeah, Chris, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I want to thank Chris for joining me on the podcast for returning to the podcast. It was absolutely a joy to talk to him again. Um, that's going to do it with this episode of the Sonics of my podcast. We got plenty more coming up on the podcast this summer. We got some film, more filmmakers to talk about. We got a living legend as far as a composer. We've got genre to explore with one of my favorite individuals to talk to about movies, even if he doesn't necessarily, uh, isn't quite sure what to think about my taste. Um, but anyway, uh, that's going to do it with this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. As I said before, check us out at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. Check us out at uh, wherever you listen to so podcasts, as well as my reviews at www.sonic-cinema.com. <laughs>